Doesn't that sound of an orchestra warming up get your heart racing? All that anticipation about what's to come. That was the wonderful conductor Gernot Schultz with Manchester's Piccadilly Orchestra at this year's ACE, and we'll be hearing more from him in a bit. First, though, what's on the agenda for you as we barrel headlong into a brand new year? Well, here are a few thoughts from a very unscientific straw poll when we asked conference delegates what they reckoned their senior leaders might be thinking about at the start of the new year. Think about your board directors in their boardroom. What is the biggest thing they're going to be talking about? What did they do on the New Year's Eve? <laughs> Revenue. GDPR. CPD. Why is that? Start of the year, instead of having a diet, think about CPD. Bringing more revenue. <laughs> Q1 orders for us, Q1 revenue. Money. And what it's going to cost them. The values and behaviours, so what is it that we're actually looking for? How do we want people to turn up in the workplace? It'll be culture. Culture, absolutely culture. I think the change to data protection laws. Retaining staff is a big one for us, you know, making sure that we get good people and that we keep good people. So. Some of those may well chime with you too. And today we're going to explore what we think HR is going to be talking about this year. You won't be surprised to hear that AI tops the list or that productivity is on there too. And we've chosen two others, which we're suggesting will be even more important this year than last. And that's agility and leadership. Now talk about tech ramped up last year as stories about AI and machine learning became regulars in the news. Claire Dillon left Microsoft Ireland's leadership team a couple of months ago to start her own consultancy. Now she helps organisations make the most of emerging tech, so she knows more about all this than most of us. For her, it's the sheer range of technologies that makes right now such a fascinating moment – and she thinks the opportunities for HR are really exciting. Most remarkable about where we are right now in terms of the evolution of technology is that it's not just one area that is evolving very quickly. It's that there is actually innovation happening in, in a multiple sets of areas. Nanotechnology, bioengineering, robotics, AI, artificial intelligence, machine learning, cloud storage and computing power. You're looking at uh, wearable devices. You're looking at sensors. They're all beginning to advance together. This isn't niche anymore. No. All the mainstream news programs talk about it all the time, largely in the context, obviously, of job loss. That's but do right. you subscribe to the way of thinking that it's, it's more about bits of jobs than jobs? I do. What I find more interesting are the services that are actually enhancing our ability to do our job. Such as? Text.io, um, which is a service that analyzes the job descriptions on a website and tells you whether the language is inclusive or not. So it's kind of like a, a spell checker hyped up to be an inclusivity checker. And they've had really good results by helping us be better humans, which I think is really interesting as an artificial intelligence agent. Do you think that most organizations will actually end up using these technologies just to cut the cost of what they already do? Or do you think they will really grab the opportunity to do what they do better? So I think they should. Um, and certainly there are reports out there to suggest that the folks that actually are going to get the most out of artificial intelligence are not just looking at it from a cost-cutting perspective. Because people have to become more competitive all the time. They have to look at new opportunities for growth. And the most successful businesses are not just transforming from a digital perspective, but they're transforming their business models. So if you're only looking at cutting costs you're by definition going to lose because there's going to be someone coming bigger, faster, better behind you doing something more innovative. I mean, as you say, 
these technologies are, are getting increasingly good at doing tasks like analysing medical scans or Correct. writing news articles or all those sort of things that we wouldn't even have thought of five years yeah. ago. Do you see a time when AI will become genuinely creative? I've seen some research reports to say they can never replicate the creative process that humans have. However, in saying that, I have seen computer-generated art. I've heard computer-generated music. And novels. And novels. I mean, humans often can't tell the difference. If you can't tell the difference between the output, then maybe it doesn't matter how we got there. I mean, these are interesting philosophical questions. I mean, what is art becomes a whole broader question now. Where where does the human fit if tech and AI can do all that? I think about the functions, some of the functions that, for example, HR do, and I think about the fact that they're not able to get to enough people to do them. Like, you know, in in certain large organisations, perhaps coaches are only available to the top 2% or the top 10%. And I think about the value that would be inserted into the organisation if everyone had access to that. And And then I think, well, actually... You know, that's that's where the real value is. It's it's not about replacing the folks that are there doing it because some people will still love that face to face interaction, but it's about dramatically increasing the ability to uh, deliver those services so at scale. At a scale, and then and then you think about the planning for that and the fact that you're dealing with so many more people at that much richer level, and then they're the kind of uh, considerations that HR will then have to start looking at. You know, where, where are people who who do need coaches? What what do they need coaching in? That is a whole new set of work, right? So it's it's a different set of tasks. It won't be the same things anymore. For learning and development professionals, this sort of AI will begin to define not just how, but what we learn. Here's corporate learning expert Nigel Payne. Building up profiles of individuals and allowing learning to become personalised, okay. essentially. So what might, what might that mean on the ground? What it means is that, that if you've got some kind of... Um, online platform as you use it it knows your role it knows where you're struggling a bit it knows where you're focusing it knows where you're going very fast through stuff or slow through stuff so it begins to build a profile of you in the background and therefore it starts suggesting rather than you having to search an entirely personalised learning operation, which is different for every single person. So it's self-directed, but it's personalised. Yes, it's personalised, and therefore increasing productivity, increasing individual productivity, because you're, it's almost anticipating where you're going to go wrong, rather than reacting when you have gone wrong. And that will definitely increase productivity by possibly several percentage points in an organisation. Interesting, in these times of low-level productivity... And another tech idea has caught Nigel's eye too. Imagine Netflix for learning. So a very attractive, easy to use, very accessible platform that keeps flashing stuff in front of you and says, so here's a little synopsis, I think you'd love this. This is 95% likely to meet your needs. This is something that the organisation is focusing on. I think you've got a little gap here. Very colourful, graphics-led, not a kind of boring list of things. And every time you click on that platform, you're building up your their knowledge about you. So on the one hand, you can say it's scary. On the other hand, you can say this is going to save huge amounts of time and effort. And I think that will become learning that is literally part of your work. And where is where is the level of excellence with that sort of learning at the moment? Because you talk about you know the the idea of the, the learning chasing you around, it's like ads chasing you around the internet, isn't it? And we all know how annoying that can be when the algorithm hasn't quite got it right. So yes. where are we at with it? 
Well, I, we're, we're pretty close, I think. That if you look at some of the experience platforms, they allow you to plug in so much other resources. So that, that's um, information coming from different sources. So they kind of generate themselves almost. Highly refined. Yeah, highly refined. And also so, the argument always goes that we exist in an echo chamber if we do that because it only shows us stuff. It kind of knows that we're interested in. And you don't have that diving down a rabbit hole experience, which admittedly can be time-wasting, you're or right. venturing into territory that you might not be expected to venture into. You are right. Uh, and I think there, there are two responses to that. The first response is that it's not just you, it's the organisation plus you. So it's not just learning about you, it's learning what the organisation needs. And the second point is that the output of this has to be more curious, more confident, more competent learners. And once you've got that, people move off on their own. Organisational agility is on everyone's agenda for this year, not least the police. Currently tackling the many challenges of merging two very different police forces, Devon and Cornwall and Dorset, Graham Smith can talk about all this from experience. He's Director of People and Leadership for the Combined Force. And to give you an idea of the scale of the job, that's 7,500 people spread across 5,000 square miles. And if you're picturing people management inside the police force as a bit old school, well, think again. Having sort of come into it 17 years ago now, it hasn't been quite what I was expecting. Policing has very much got a a can-do attitude and you expect it to be very regimented, very hierarchical. Actually, they're some of the most open and and left-of-centre thinkers are some of your your senior police officers. Have we all been led astray by too much TV drama, do you? Yeah, I, maybe. <laughs> maybe there's an element of that. And less siloed and more creative than people might think, from uh, what you're saying. Very much so. I, I think people would be stunned by some of the levels of, of creativity and some of the things that are tried. Fascinating. I need more examples <laughs> now you said that. <laughs> I was talking to somebody about the, the workforce planning process that we use and and how we look at demand and how we've got to constantly shape around that demand and then deal with the supply side of it and they were just they were shocked from a private sector perspective as to actually just how creative we had been in terms of looking at the process but how lean and how fast it was so the fact that we are, we are taking in data, we're capturing huge amounts of, of information about crime and we're looking at demands on the organisation and we're looking at sort of threat, risk and harm and we're assessing where we can put those resources in the most effective way possible. And that's now. That's and not that's, in the future, it's constant and, right and now. And that's now. And then we'll go back through that cycle and we'll go and repeat it with the next set of data because it never stands still and some of the the issues around call handling i think you know there are areas within the the private sector that would just be stunned by the amount of work that is done to ensure that we can get to calls as quickly as possible and to triage that in the most effective way. From what you're saying, it sounds like there's a lot of public misconception about how the police forces operate across country and maybe some lessons from the police force for the private sector. Yeah, we do these things called organisational raids. 
where we'll set a, a team up and we will go into an organisation, so in Dorset, companies like John Lewis, JP Morgan, and we'll put a team in and we'll say, right, teachers, teachers, what you do, what's important for you, how do you make a difference? And then we'll, we'll grab those, those lessons and we'll bring them back into the organisation. So you take operational lessons from retailers and the rest and yeah. investment banking and bring it back in and yeah. see what you can learn from it. Yeah, and certainly at, at the moment there is a huge push in policing around academic rigour, levels of creativity and looking at things differently but putting the academic rigour behind that. So in, in Devon and Cornwall at the moment we have a programme on wellbeing that we're linked in with Exeter University. We've brought in doctorate students from Exeter to work through the research findings and we're looking at things like the impact of shift patterns on sleep quality. When you've crunched that data and Mm -hmm. you've got some outcomes from it, from what you're saying, you can turn that into practice quite fast. We can turn it into practice quite fast and because of the level of cooperation between the police forces... We'll share that across the country. Sounds like agility to me. (laughs) Paula Leach has one of the most interesting and testing jobs in the UK right now. She's Chief People Officer at the Home Office. With Brexit looming, Whitehall has already created and filled 3,000 new posts – Brexit Secretary David Davis tells us there could be up to 5,000 more by this time next year. For Paula, all this is more a resource challenge than a policy one. And, of course, Brexit is only part of what the Home Office does every day. So whichever way you look at it, it's a big job. And right now, it's all about agility and productivity. It is, and there's multiple ways in which we can approach that. We're used to working at scale, so those numbers, although they sound very big, you know, we're, we're working in a system which is very big and delivering across the whole country. So proportionally, it's challenging, but it's not something that we're not used to doing. The open challenge for us is when do you make the choice about committing to, to those resources given that you know, we're not entirely sure exactly how we will need to deploy. And, and secondly, what range of options do you look at? So this isn't just about hiring more people. It might be about how do you create capacity within an organisation. So that can mean a number of things, including choices that we make about prioritising work. It might be about where we base work. It might be about how we balance skills in the organisation. So all of that is part of this. It's not just about incremental resource in an organisation. Obviously at the start of that challenge, it's it's finding them, isn't it? And when we talk about this, you know, 8,000 new people, you don't just whistle them up from nowhere, do you? Actually, whenever you have a big change in an organisation's demand, so for example, in our case, you know, Brexit could be an example of changing demand for the civil service resources, you have to look at that in concert with the opportunity. And the opportunity is for us to go faster, perhaps with some of our technological transformation. And then that directly leads into skills. So that's about what's the skills mix for the future. We've already got many of these plans in place. The opportunity is whether or not we accelerate some of that and how we manage to redeploy resources that we already have, reskill them, and then 
reach into a marketplace within the country that, to be honest, is quite saturated and quite in demand, which is the technological and digital marketplace. Well, as you say, thinking across the public sector, not just Whitehall, everyone's in a cost-cutting environment, money is tight, there's all the issues around tight budgetary constraint leading to tight investment in people, let alone tech. This sense of the returns from doing more of the same are kind of drying up now. So is it a year when you'll, you and everyone across the organisation in its broadest sense will need to be thinking in really innovative ways? Because you can't just repeat what's happened, even in the last post-recession years. Yeah, I mean, I can't think of any organisation that doesn't constantly need to be thinking both about continual improvement and about um, transformative change within an organisation. I I suppose with Brexit, I mean, expectations have never been higher and it's a hard deadline, isn't it? So it's not just a general aspiration to do better or be more innovative. It's a deliver this by this deadline situation. It is, and it provides an impetus to us as an organisation. We're a high-performing organisation. We're absolutely committed. We can't not deliver in this space, and we want to do so efficiently. So that requires us to be thinking well ahead as much as we can and planning for those scenarios, and that's exactly what, what we're doing. And those scenarios range, and that makes it quite complicated because, you know, we could be talking about, you know, redeployment of resources and some extra resources all the way through to quite significant change but having said all of that we are doing the scenario planning we're looking at the ways in which we can start to change now not waiting until such time as clarity becomes available I mean, i've sat here and asked you australian questions about brexit i'm really wondering are you fed up with talking about brexit <laughs> not is really. it the only conversation <laughs> it's not the only conversation um i think if you if you think back across you know however many years there's there's a version of some major change that has to be absorbed in the public sector at any given time it has to be this is a big one this is a big one but having said that you know we are where we are and looking backwards and thinking about you know how difficult it is isn't really very helpful so I think from our perspective this has got to be about providing confidence in the people that use our services providing confidence within our own employees and teams that we can meet some of those challenges. Now back to that lovely moment at last year's annual conference when the CIPD's CEO Peter Cheese introduced conductor Gernot Schultz. Gernot is a long-time member of the Berlin Philharmonic Orchestra, a musician and an educator. And for Peter, the parallels with his work for leaders were obvious. Any of you who know classical music will appreciate what conductors do. Those who don't probably think it's just the bloke waving a stick and all the hard work's done by these guys. He will demonstrate there's a lot more to it than that. You also need to understand that Gernot only met this orchestra, when did he meet you? Yesterday? Yesterday evening? Something like that? About two hours ago. Or about two hours ago, right? (laughs) Um, So a leader coming in to an organisation, a group of people, and helping to lead and to orchestrate. So I think you'll find lots of parallels between the world of orchestral music and how the dynamics of orchestras work, all the subtle undertones that go on and all the divas that sit around us and all their talents and bringing them all together harmoniously. So Gernot, please come up and uh, join your orchestra.
of a conductor. Yeah, it's from outside we we seem to be the the, the, the dictators waving with the baton and they they do the members stuff do the things that we want them to do, but uh, that's that's not the way it, it really works. N- not at all. Not at all. I suppose if I was to make a comparison with the sort of work that most people do, office-bound work, you come in as a leader of a group of experts who don't even necessarily know each other very well. You don't know them, you may know them, you may have worked with them before, you may not, and you have a very limited time frame in order to produce a really high quality piece of work. And as you say, they're experts, they know they're experts, so you can lead, but you can't necessarily command. How do you convey all that in a very short rehearsal time? It's a matter, at the very end, a matter as, to my opinion, every, every kind of leadership is, it's a matter of your personality, of, of your ability to, to be authentic. So what links you with these musicians is the music. You have no other immediate connection with them, I guess. That's your shared purpose. Do you need to know them to get the best from them, or do they need to know you? At first, I perceive their habits, how they are used to play this or that piece, or right. how that's obvious within the first five minutes. And then there's is my <laughs> my way to see the music, and now it's it's about there, there's gap, <laughs> so it's it's a, a hard work of integration, and of coming together. My vision, which normally I, I don't change, at least I don't change very much. I, I have to stay to my conviction, and to convey that in a in a very convincing way. As I said, it, it's, it, I cannot command them. I cannot force anybody to do that. I have really to convince them. And how do you do that? To be very, my lifelong, uh, lifelong work to be very deep into the scores, into the music, into the composer's life, um, so that there is obvious for everybody. It's about a higher purpose. It's not about me. Your favorite piece to conduct, <laughs> and why? <laughs> That's an often asked question. A particular favorite? <laughs> if you were relaxing at home, what would you listen to? No music. <laughs> <laughs> that can't yeah, be music true. Music around me all, 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 the, all the time. <laughs> and funnily enough, Nigel Payne has a bit of a thing about silence too. We know more and more about how the brain learns. And one of the clear reference points that's emerging is that we don't reflect enough. And in this world where everything is full on all the time, the only time we are quiet is when we sleep. And that's quite useful to have a good night's sleep. But I think there's a huge value in just taking even a minute or two minutes just in silence sometimes with your eyes closed and just think about what you're learning what is important to you and what you should focus on and funnily enough when you do that that is what you focus on and the learning is deeper so i'm i'm a great believer in silence i think we should have more silence in l and d and for all those people raising their eyebrows listening to this and thinking "Mm." Uh, it's embedded in neuroscience isn't it it is it is absolutely true Yes, we, we weren't meant to chatter our whole life. You know. It's a nice message to take forward for the year, isn't it? Say less. <laughs> Say less. <laughs> Be silent. 2018, welcome. 